Jen. Sorry, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm going to say this. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry either, but like, oh my God. Yeah. Well, Books That Blooded Us is going to include something. Well, I think, you know what? This is a, well... (laughs) Welcome to, I'm a, welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. <laughs> I'm Jen, pro cop, and I... J E H N. Look, My there is... You know what? I'm, here's why I'm not sad, because there's so much to talk about this book. It's going to oh. be amazing. Fine. Oh, my God. <laughs> Unbelievable. Introduce yourself, Sarah. And I'm then- Sarah McLean. I write romance. I read romance novels. Um, I have a story to tell related to both of those things in this book. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But this uh, this is season two of Faded Mates. And if you are just joining us, which we hope you are, um, perhaps you're a Black Dagger Brotherhood fan um, or um, a J.R. Ward fan, welcome. Um, last season, we spent the entire season talking about Immortals After Dark. And we liked talking about romance so, so much that we decided to keep going. And this year, um, we're doing The Books That Blooded Us, by which I mean, Jen and I have been reading romance novels since the dawn of time. Yes. And and so we made a list of the 20 books that blooded us, 10 books from me and 10 books from her. And uh, she picked this week's choice, which is Dark Lover, the first in the Black Tiger Brotherhood series. J.R. Ward, who, fun fact, went to Smith College, which is where I went to Smith. I went to school, too. And one day I was in the alumni library and I, like, looked her up in in her – I found her yearbook to look her up. Um, And before she wrote Black Tiger Brotherhood, this will be surprising to a lot of you, she wrote, like, Sweet Harlequins under the name Jessica Bird. Jessica Bird. Yeah. Which I've heard they're great. They are. I don't know if I've read them. She's a very skilled writer. And uh, it is, but it is whiplash. Yeah, <laughs> going from Jessica Bird's Harlequins to J.R. Ward's shit-kicking, yeah, seven-foot-tall <laughs> vampires, wild <laughs> vampires. Anyway, Jen, tell everybody why you picked it. Okay, so you know what's really funny is I actually have not reread this in a long time, and Same. I, but I, it's. In a way, I regret that I didn't pick whatever the, you know, titles, what are they? Especially this series where they're all, like, the same. The second book, which is the one about Rage and Mary, is probably my favorite and one that I've, like, read and reread a bunch of times. And I know a lot of people, like, really love the third book, which is Zeta's book. But the reason I picked this one is because I actually feel like... It's, you know, it was like the start of the journey, right? It's book number one. But also I have a really funny story to tell about this book. So I'm going to start there because you had your story about reading it in geography, you know, uh, James Mallory in geography class. Mm -hmm. So here's my story. So I think I read this book probably in 2008. So I did not read it right when it came out. And what happened is I, at my school, you know, I know you guys know I'm an English teacher One of the first, at the beginning of every, (laughs) the first meeting back every year, we would have this meeting where people would say what they read over the summer. And And judge each other. 
And I never really felt judged because I always read so many things. Well, because you were right, like, I read, you know, I read the feminist uh, yeah, Proust, treatise, on whatever. Proust. Right, exactly. <laughs> Nerd. So, so the first, I think this was like my second year at my current school. And what happened is I, I didn't realize everyone had hated this meeting until all of, like a lot of my friends were like, oh, it just feels so judgy, whatever. So I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to be honest this year then. And I remember talking about how I read Dark Lover. <laughs> and everyone was like, mm, what now? Wait, but this was 2000, I'm sorry, repeat and eight, that? 2008. 2008. Okay, so... Yeah. Two years, two and a half years. Yeah. And after. I, and what I remember saying is like, I actually in the summer really, like at that point, I think I had, I was not on a romance only diet as I am post election. And I was like, yeah, I let, read a lot of romance this summer. And one that I really thought was pretty wild and I really enjoyed it was this book called Dark Lover. And I remember like talking about it. And at the end of the meeting, one of my English department colleagues was like, can I borrow it? And I said, sure. <laughs> well done. And a new romance reader was born. Yeah. So I think part of the reason, though, if I mean, it was really interesting to reread it because I have not gone back to read this one in so long. But it is propulsive and it a lot of us really cut our teeth on this series. And even though it reads so differently now, I still think it was a really interesting experience to go back and read it. Um, I definitely read The Black Dagger Brotherhood before I read IAD. I did not read them concurrently. Same. Right? And so yeah. I think it's also a very different experience for me to go back and look at the uh, look at the series after the d the deep dive into IAD because it's just never going to be as satisfying in the same way. Um, it's not, and there are a lot of reasons why that I hope we get into over the next hour. Um, I have like a list a mile long of topics I want to tackle. Um, but I so here's my thing. So I wanted to just do a little bit of background. Um, Jen and I just went through all the important vampire dates that we thought maybe <laughs> would be valuable. Um, so like when we're talking about Anne Rice, we're talking, you know, and, and her sort of early vampire books, the interview with the vampire. That was the 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Um, Queen of the Damned was at the time like the biggest book, uh, the biggest uh, fiction, yeah. certainly. Well, and if it's biggest fiction, it's definitely the biggest book of the year um, in the in 1988. It's it shipped. Um, I will confirm this. There is a great article um, that I will find and we will put in show notes, but it shipped um, first print run about 850,000 copies, which for those of it's you listening, it, just know it's as many as you think it is like it's a lot. <laughs> That's a big number. And uh, so that was the sort of – that was 1988. And then the 90s brought us vampires in the media. Oh, yeah. Big time. You know, be between the movie versions of those uh, Anne Rice books, um, the Bram Stoker's Dracula version. Blade is the one I really remember. Yep. Um, Keanu Reeves. Oh, Yeah. And then uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer yes. brought us uh, lady heroines, like badass yeah. girls who could fight vampires and save the world and themselves. Um, and then 
in 2005, in September of 2005, we get the Black Dagger Brotherhood. And uh, this is not exhaustive. There are other vampires in romance sure. before this. Please understand that we are not saying, like, J.R. Ward was the first. But I think she is an important text when we talk about vampires in romance. Certainly, she needs to be one of the top, like, three who we discuss when we talk about why vampires, why romance. Um, and then in October 2005, a little book that some of you may have read called Twilight <laughs> came out and blew the doors off. And then um, in March of 2006, A Hunger Like No Other came out. That is right. book one of Cressley's IAD series. But interestingly, we've oh, last last year we talked about the fact that IAD – um, the series starts with a hunger like no other, but there is a 0.5 novella right. that is – we couldn't ever figure it out why this novella like, got pushed in got right. pushed in before the series starts. Um, but so the series Hunger Like No Other came out end of March, March 28th, and um, – a Warlord Wants Forever, that 0.5 novella that we made everybody not read first, came out February 7th. And I really think that's probably because Crusty's publisher was like, vampires, like Twilight yeah. is happening, Black Dagger Brotherhood is out, like, what can we do? And Crusty was like, well, I guess I could write a, you know, a prequel. Again, I don't know. I don't know Crusty. I don't know her publisher. But yeah. looking at these dates, it sure looks like. That's probably it. Um, oh, you know what else I'm going to do while you uh, take over is look up Lindsay Sands's books because and Janine Frost. So, to me, this is like a really clear cut and really fascinating case of how that like we talk a lot about how romance iterates on society, and to me, like sort of Blade. The movie with Wesley Snipes, which was, I, I don't know if you saw it, my husband and I went to see it in a movie theater, and I remember really feeling like I had like, never seen anything like it before. Um, mm -hmm. There's like a scene where they're all like clubbing, and you know, they're like dancing, and like blood comes out of the sprinklers in the, um, in the ceiling. I mean, it's just really like sexy and intense, and then I think like, you know, that and Buffy, like it's a really, it's... When I think about it sort of intellectually, it makes sense that romance would sort of like pick up these threads and like be like something is happening right in these stories. We want to like, you know, in the past five or ten years and we want to like sort of weave them into what's happening in romance. And especially um, the other books that were coming out, which became really big later, were the Sookie Stackhouse series. Um, so I feel like, you know, that urban fantasy was sort of picking it up. And so maybe that like permeability between romance and, and that genre kind of was leading to it. Mm -hmm. And it's just like really interesting to like look back at a big explosion of like kind of vampires everywhere and wonder, you know, like what was happening? What were we really tapping into? Yeah, I want so I want to say um, two other things. Like it is important that we say that Lindsay Sands was writing in two thousand three vampires. Mm. She started her Argonaut series, which is twenty nine books long or something. It's massive. The new one just came out and um, is selling a bunch. Still a hugely popular series, um, and that started in two thousand and three. Mm. And Janine Frost's. Uh, series started in 2007. So, yeah. I mean, we're taught, like, everything, look, romance 
if you're a romance reader, you know that like when one comes out and hits big, suddenly like everybody's looking for how to ride the train. Of course. Um, and I think and every major publishing house is looking for their version of that thing. Yeah. Um, and J.R. Ward, I mean, she she hit Pater here. I mean, like she came up with this series about a brotherhood of vampires um, who and the conceit, and I actually think the conceit is really interesting, is um, they are not made, they are born. Um, and just like they are, interestingly, in IAD, like there's this sort of some are made, some are born. In this case, they are all born. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't feed for, they feed, obviously, they feed on blood, but they also eat and drink. Yeah. Um, and they f- must feed from... Another vampire. From another vampire. It is usually somehow sexual, and it is cross-gender platform. Uh, Gender gender lines. And I mean, in 2019... Sure. It's all... Well, right. There's a lot, right, that's a problem in this. Like, there's a lot of gendered language. I mean, like, everybody's a female. Yeah. (laughs) Well, males and females, right? Like, it's very... right. Yeah, that's um, the kind of stuff that's like not aging well. And it's funny because she's still writing books. And now and she's I, written like she's written a sort of very famous queer couple, like male yeah. male couple who she wrote, you know, over time through the series. And what's interesting is this is a good example of, you know, last year we talked about it over and over again that like at the beginning there are moments where you think, ee, and then like the series evolves along with time, just like romance sure. does. So um, you know, Dark Lover, but there were definitely moments that I, for sure, when I first read the series in 2009 um, or 2010, I did not blink at. And no. this time, and this time around, I was like, "Oof, there's yeah. a lot of like problem here." Here's the thing I'll say too that I just think is like interesting, and I, like a lot of these really long running series, I haven't kept with. So I and with the Black Dagger Brotherhood, I read it's funny because I was going back through. I I read the first three or four. And then I got to like Fury's book, which I think was five, and and just stopped reading it. It you know it, it, I was it was just not the book for me. And then I actually went back and read one more, I think. And then I I stopped. I haven't really read more. So I actually am pretty curious now to read kind of a newer one to see how she's dealt with some of these issues that are not aging well, and see how they're like sort of how it's how it's evolved in her books. But, you know, that's something I think if we have listeners who are still reading her, I'd be really interested to hear how some of this stuff is playing out now. Yeah. So uh, where do you want to go first? Let me just do a really quick plot overview. And then I think we can, we'll end up talking about um, some of the stuff that I think we think is like really exceptionally sort of like we, you know, kind of took us back to like a moment of like, ooh. But I also want to talk about why it worked for so many of us, because there's a lot of us who really read and loved these books. And I think it's worth digging into like the why, even if those reasons don't exist now. Um, I I found, I'm not going to lie to you, I reread Dark Lover this week. I reread Rage and Mary this week. I <laughs> Oh, like, Rage and Mary are so good. Oh, they're my favorite. And <laughs> I, I, so I fell back into sort of rereading some of my favorite parts of it. And then that's, I think, sometimes what helps me figure out what it is that, like, really spoke to me. 
in these books. So um, the Black Dagger Brotherhood is a these like kind of mystical vampire warriors. They're like essentially um, they're regular vampires out there in the world, but the Black Dagger Brotherhood is essentially their like Navy SEAL team. Exactly. But instead of having to be trained for it, like they're a essentially brotherhood of dukes. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, right? It's always it's always that in romance. But it's a no, but it is. It's a little bit um like Wrath, the main character of this book is king. So like uh it is it's also like a little like those Scottish the Scottish medievals where like all the warriors are working together. Sure. It's sure. very steeped in romance. Like if it is not a complicated conceit. Con- it's not a complicated world to understand. Yeah, exactly. The book essentially opens with um, Darius, who is like Raph's like kind of second in command, actually getting killed by their enemies, which is this really interesting. That's I think we spent a lot of time, um, which is a group of other kind of paranormal creatures called the Lessers. And these are men who have given up their souls and sold them to someone called the Omega. They are emasculated in this process they keep Mm. their souls in jars and they smell like baby powder and they can't get an erection right and it's really interesting and as opposed to the virility right of absolute virility of the the black dagger brotherhood so anyway um darius on his deathbed essentially has asked wrath to look after his daughter who's half human but she's about to be 25 and approaching the time of transition which is when People, like, really fully become vampires. And it sounds like a mess. Oh, yeah. It sounds terrible, right? It's not, like, <laughs> it's being like, blooded. It's No, it's, like, puberty in the extreme. <laughs> exactly. Like, 24-hour puberty. <laughs> and except that you need to drink blood. Um, and also, like, have a lot of orgasms. But I guess, oh, I don't know. That's I mean, it's too, maybe, fine. <laughs> so he and Wrath... His intention is to say no, but when Darius dies, he feels like, I have to keep this last promise. And, of course, he falls instantly in love with her, pretty much. I mean, and um, it is, along with their story of sort of falling in love, this book is also jammed in with subplots. And it's a real big hallmark of J.R. Ward's writing and of this series. So many. Yeah, that she is. Well, because it's urban fan. Yes. Let's get to it. It's urban fantasy. So I don't read urban fantasy because I don't care (laughs) about all these subplots. I mean, ultimately, look, you guys, I've said a thousand times, and I apologize again to those of you who, like, bemoan this on Twitter, but, like, I don't read spy novels because I don't care. Yeah. About the war or the sure you know, killer or the i don't i don't care and so um like i want these two people's faces to mash together and that's basically all i want um but this and this is why i don't read like this is why i'm like i've never read alona andrews this is yeah. why like i just don't and this is honestly why i avoided paranormal until the mid 2000 the mid like yeah until like 2009 2010 because i felt like ugh, i don't care can I tell you? She's doing a lot of really interesting stuff in here. Oh, God. I think it's fascinating. Here's my theory, though, is I was kind of reading this one and thinking about how it was different from, is Lover Awakened the one with Mary in Rage? What's the fucking name of that? Would you look it up for me? Like, what's, like, Jesus, Sarah. No, they're all okay. lovers. After this, it's all lover something, and it's nutso. Um, if we were doing this, it would be like, 
I, I forget it. If we were doing this, we'd be like Lover, Rage, and Mary, which is frankly what we should call it. Okay, yes. let's no. do that. Lover, Awaken is Zadis. Oh. Lover, Rage, and Mary. Okay, listen. Lover, Rage, and Mary is what I'm going. That's amazing. Okay. Here's the thing. <laughs> Lover, Rage, and Mary is way more of a romance. And I wonder, I, you know what I found myself thinking as yeah. I read this? I wonder if they were like, this is a test balloon. And if people are really into the romance part, we'll lean that way in the future. And if people aren't, we'll go more the urban fantasy route. <laughs> okay. I have a theory. Okay. My theory, and it has to do with all those dates that I gave everybody at the beginning of the podcast, right? My theory is J.R. Ward wanted to write an urban fantasy series. Yeah. She put it together as an urban fantasy series. She pitches an urban fantasy series. They had intended to, like, look, the packaging even of that first one is very, like, could be romantic suspense. It definitely is romantic suspense. It could edge even, like, into, like... Just sort of thriller. It's a real hybrid. Um, and what's interesting is, is like she had come from romance. She changed her name. Mm-hmm. She st- she was starting new. Yeah. Um, and she had specifically given herself. She'd done the like Nora Roberts treatment, right? Where she'd come from classic contemporary. She was moving into something else. Again, arguably urban fantasy. The um, uh, blah blah blah. What is that? The even Rourke, Nora Roberts, even War in Rourke series, the in death series, series, right? So, and in death was designed like for men, like it was not for men, but like to to welcome men into the yeah. fold, right? And I think that's what was going on here. Except nobody predicted that Twilight would be a juggernaut, right? Exactly, and then whoosh. And then I have to assume that that romance, like first of all. Like, I wish we had a time machine to go back to that Oh, my God. Don't you? I feel the same way. Because I also feel like across New York City, there must have been, like, romance editors, like, all sitting at their desks, like, boggling at, like, the fact that YA had produced this romance novel that was bananas popular. Oh, yeah. Like, and trying to figure out, like, how to capitalize on it. Sure. And basically... These, like, what romance could do was say, like, did you like the parts where Bella and Edward kissed? Do you wish they'd done more? (laughs) Like, come on over to our house. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that's a part of it. I I actually really feel like there's something about the difference between the first and second books that makes me think that, like, a course correction happened. Yeah. I mean, like, also, it's just good business. Yeah, of course. And there's, I mean, like, here's the other thing. J.R. Ward is nothing if not an excellent businesswoman. I'm also going to post – we we're also going to put in the show notes um, this remarkable, um, uh, basically, like, article about her from her local, like, mag – her, like, I don't know. I think she lives in Kentucky. It's, like, from, like, Kentucky Monthly Magazine where, like, they go out to her house and talk to her about, like, being a juggernaut in romance. Yeah. And she's basically like, I am a – mark, like, I'm – a brand like J.R. Ward is a brand. This is what it means. Like, and it's really interesting. And the reality is, is like she. I have no doubt that she saw the market turning, oh. and she was like, "I am going to ride that vampire train, yeah, that absolutely. kissing train as far as I can." But what's interesting is, I think, and again, I don't, I don't know J.R. Ward, but I know where this series has ended up. Yeah, and I feel like which, and it's still going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's real urban fantasy now. Like, is it, it interesting? Feels like, 
I mean, there's still romance, obviously, but like it has such a different, it has a feel now in terms of world and writing yeah. that is much bigger than a romance novel. Yeah. And I think a lot of romance readers like are still with her because they love her. Sure. But like the books are not as purely romance anymore. Yeah. Um, and so part of me wonders like, did Jessica Bird who invented Black Dagger Brotherhood a thousand years ago because she, I don't know, maybe read a lot of sure. urban fantasy, finally get the power right. to, like, say, now I want to go back to my urban fantasy series. Yeah, I don't know. You know what I will say, though? And you obviously were there, too, at the Rita's. Her speech was so heartfelt. You could tell. It really was. Well, shit, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I didn't think I'd win. Um Oh, my God, this is happening. Okay, so I just am very, very grateful for RWA to bring us all here and for the judges, for my editor, Kara Welsh. Um, this means more than you'll know. I've been in this business for so long, and I am still as grateful as I was the first day my first book was published. I was conflicted about staying nominated for some very good reasons. And I'm urging this organization, please, hear the people who are speaking and who need to be heard. And I'm sorry that I'm crying on a fucking mess. Anyway, I believe in happily ever afters, and this is my happily ever after, so thank you so much. It was really, I really liked her so much yeah. at that moment, yeah. you know, that she was really, it felt like someone who genuinely loved and loved romance and cared about her loved readers. The community. Yes. And I was really yeah, I hope won I didn't over make it, it feel otherwise. Oh, no, I not explaining. at all. I, just, I, just, I really respect her. And I think she, I mean, I, I have never spoken to her, so I don't yeah. know, but she, she does feel like a really nice person oh, when, yeah. like, when you hear her speak. A very sort of honest person and authentic person. You should listen to the Wicked Wallflowers podcast listeners if you haven't with her on because she was a real firebrand. But I do. I just found myself really feeling because sometimes I feel I feel so protective of romance that when people drift away from it, I'm like, come back. We love you. But I feel like in this case, I was like that. I'm just being a a baby. Like she loves romance. She loves, you know, she's just doing what's right for her. And that's what everyone should do. But over the course, so she was nominated for a couple of Ritas this year, and she read all the Ritas. I did. All all the Rita books. So my question is, were all the books she was nominated for romances? I, one was, and one I did not think really was. So one, the one that was, I think, in romantic suspense was one about two firefighters. That was the firefighter one. And to me, that felt... it did not feel it like there was a romance in it and they get together. So, you know, like, but it really, to me, was not like the primary plot. But mm, then mm-hmm. the novella, which is, I think, what she actually won for. No, Paranormal. Um, yeah, she didn't. It wasn't the novella. I don't yeah, think. no, no. Because Minx Malone won that one. The, she won in Paranormal, but for a book that was a little shorter. But it's a Black Dagger Brotherhood, like a, a little book. Like, it, you know, I, I so this is, uh, it was really tight on two characters and it was also very different it didn't have as much of the head hopping of people mm. you know it was really pretty pretty um stuck on one the heroine's point of view which you find out later why but um it was it was i mean it was she's a propulsive writer yeah well that's the bonkers thing 
when you're reading these books and there is so much okay first of all she does the Cressley thing where she um the chapters are super short or if they're yep. not the chapters that are super short the sections within them yeah there's so many different scenes we're in so many different characters heads so we're in Rath's head we're in Beth's head we're in uh, Butch's head a lot, a lot more than I which I didn't expected. really expect at all. Butch is um, a police officer who becomes the hero of one of the first six books. Yeah, book four, I think, right? Um, and he's human, and like somehow is allowed to like, right, hang out with him. Um, and then there, and then you're in like Mister X's head, right? The, the, yeah, like, then sort you're of- in the villain's head, mm-hmm. and. You're in, like, Beth's father's head for a little bit of time. Like, mm-hmm. she's just exploring a lot of different pieces of the world. Yeah. Um, in a really interesting way. But somehow, I'm not bored oh, when no. I read these. The, I, I will say this, like... Not at all. Later in the series, like, as I... So, I read... <laughs> so, I'll, I'll tell my story. So, okay. I read... Um, because I know one of the things we want to get into is, like, why? Because I think this book reads very differently in 2019 than it did in 2009 when I read it. Ten years have put a little bit of shadow on this book for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but back in the day, in 2009, I was not I – I think I've said this before. I was not a paranormal reader. Um, like, I didn't read Cressley's books until three yeah. or four years ago. Um, and I, so in 2009, my sister, who was a huge paranormal fan, and I had just started my first, um, Nine Rules was about to come out. And I was, I was realizing that like, I was going to be talking a lot about my history in romance and like the books that I loved and that paranormal, which was still sort of in its heyday at that time was a real, like, I, it was, it was a it was a whole world I couldn't really see. Like mm-hmm. I hadn't, I hadn't ever dipped a toe in it. It felt really big, and I wasn't really that interested in it because you know I don't care as long as their faces are mashing together. <laughs> so um, my sister was like, "Well, you have to read." I was like, "Give me some books. Like, tell me who I should read." So she gave me a list. Cressley was on it. J.R. Ward was on it. Uh, Lindsay Sands was on it. Um, Nalini was on it. So. You know, it was a a good solid, now looking back, like it was a very solid list. Sherilyn Kenyon, oh, who of course also wrote Vampires. Um, So I started reading Black Dagger Brotherhood. So I was like, all right, I'll start with this series, which seems big. Like I've heard of J.R. Ward, like these are big books. So I downloaded Dark Lover, read it in like a day. And then was like, what? Yeah. (laughs) And I remember on the first, like on page like three, Somebody like somebody says like, well, wrath is about as comforting as a sawed off and like keeps moving forward. And I stopped and I called my sister and I was like, I'm confused by this whole genre. Right. Like there's language in here that I don't understand. Like what does sawed off mean? <laughs> and my sister was like, a sawed off shotgun. shotgun. And I was like, what? <laughs> And then it was like, okay, well, so I come from historical, so okay, we don't have those in our world. And then it was like sawed off, shit kickers. Like, and then it was like all the brands. There's so much brand. There's so much. Oh, yeah, right. All the the cars, the, oh, yeah, right. So much coded language around masculinity and like weaponry and like, oh, yeah. There's so much stuff packed into this book that I really did feel like I was like in a new world. And I want to talk a world. I know you do too. Talk yeah. about world building. So then um, 
So I was like, what? This is amazing. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to read the next one. And the next day I downloaded Rage and Mary, Lover Rage and Mary. <laughs> and I started reading that. And the third day I had to, I had to, I was going on a trip to England with my mom for 10 days. And I was like, what am I going to do? So I downloaded the first six or seven books in the series. I downloaded for those of you who follow the series straight up until Lover, Hex, and John Michael. Oh, see, I, I never got that far. So, um, so we got, so, and I read them back to back to back yeah. to back to back all through my trip in England yeah. with my mom, like all through London. And the whole time my mom would go to bed and I would stay up late and read these Black Dagger Brotherhood books. And the whole time I was like, what is it that is so compulsive about these books? What is it that I can't, that make, that like, I can't stop reading them. That's yeah. making them so readable. And how do I write it in historical? Yeah. Like for me, it was like, I can tell, I could tell, I could like tell that the DNA of this book was unputdownable. Yeah. And I was like, how do I translate this DNA to historical so I too can be J.R. Ward? And these books are the reason why. The Casino series, my Casino series, mm. was built the way that it was. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I that's the part that I think is really – her skill as an author is really unmatched, I think, in the sense of, like, what is she is doing to, like, pull people along through what is a both a very complicated, a very – a big world, a complicated world with, like, lots of elements that might – I think lots of people are going to like hook into different things and be like, oh, that was a part that didn't work for me, but I kept reading. That is a fascinating thing to me. How do you keep people reading past what is, I mean, an attempted sexual assault of our heroine on page four? These are books usually that I just, I'm like, I'm done. Yeah, but she, what the way she does that, it's interesting because it is, I wish that we had thought about, that we had realized that. that I know, I, I didn't realize either. I oh, for, I did too. Listeners, I, I'm sorry. I had forgotten that that was there. Yeah. And like. I did too. And, you know, it's 10, again, it's like 10 years ago, sexual assault on the page was like often used as a plot device mm -hmm. to like establish character or like do something yeah. like this. I did like that nobody saved her. She sort saved of saved herself. She yeah. saves herself, which sort of establishes the world that you're in. Like something different is going on here. Um, but yeah, I hadn't remembered it honestly. No, so I wish I had content warned it. But I this is a good time for me to say the thing that I said to Jen. We need to make make sure we say every episode, which is over the course of we are Jen and I are reading along with you. Yeah, right. We have in many cases not read these books. Since I mean, in decades. So, um, please, 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 if you are someone who needs content warnings, check. If somebody reads, tweets check, us yeah. a content warning, we're going to retweet it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, if you've got one, please share, and we will retweet it at Faded Mates on Twitter. Um, but if you need them, please, please, please go to Goodreads yeah. and look at the content warnings and the um, reviews there before yeah. you dive into yeah. some of these books because there will be problematic content, and we hope. We hope you trust us enough to know that when we hit co problematic content, we're going to talk about it. Um, but I think the thing that to me that's really interesting, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting things about this book that like really worked for me. And I think one of the things that that we talk a lot about, like the patriarchy and like mm. sort of bringing down the patriarchy, like sort of what romance does and how it does it. 
To me, the thing that's fascinating about this book, and I kind of felt honestly the same way about Twilight, is it's like the patriarchal world exists and it's veiled and hidden from us, right? Like, and then Beth kind of enters into, and somehow the structure of the Black Dagger Brotherhood patriarchy is so much more... I don't know. It's, like, so much more in your face than sort of the regular world. It's really rigid. Oh, yeah. I mean, you feel punched in the face with, like, masculinity. Yeah, but Toxic. Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. But then I think part of it is something about, like, the secretive nature of that. Like, the idea that this whole world was hidden from you, that you, like, the reader, like Beth, is sort of coming into this thing we've never seen before and trying to uncover it. And then, like, not only uncover it, but find our place in it and then, like, pierce the veil of it, I think is what's really appealing about books like this. And like I said, I felt very similar about Twilight. Like, that's sort of this, you know... I don't know, like the hidden, that that idea of like someone sort of the Alice in Wonderland feeling almost of like, oh my God, there's this whole other world that exists that I didn't know about. And I can conquer it, right? Like that, I think that's really primal. I don't know. Oh, I think that's incredibly primal. And I think it's something that we see over and over again, like brotherhoods of men, right? Homosocial community. Yeah. In romance is a real thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It is. We see it in like the Stephanie Lawrence Sinster novels and in, you know, in my casino series. Like mm-hmm. there are uh, you can sort of point to uh, dozens of romance series that are connected by brotherhoods of men. Yeah. Where um, these men have a kind of relationship with each other that is in- incredibly intense and kind of and like odd in the sense that like it's not common in real life to meet people who are so like connect deeply connected to a group of friends especially men right and this is i mean i appreciate that i'm making a sort of very you know broad assumption but there this is sort of a i think this is why these the reason why these brotherhoods sort of turn up in romance so often is because there's something very compelling about the idea of a group of men who talk to each other and, like, have girlfriend time. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like, with each other. And um, it's interesting because um, there is a great essay that I highly, highly recommend by Mary Bly, who is um, actually Eloisa James. Right. But it is written by Mary Bly in um, the New Approaches to Popular Romance Fiction. We'll put links in the show notes. The essay is called On Popular Romance, J.R. Ward and the Limits of Genre Study. But as part of it, she talks about Dark Lover and about this kind of like appeal of the homosocial community of men um, for readers post 9-11. And I think it's I've talked about post 9-11 romance before Mary wrote about it. Um, you know, I think this came out in 2012. And it's worth it's worth looking at if you're somebody who's like interested in the nerdy side of yeah, right. um, in like genre criticism of romance. Um, it's really valuable. But I think but she talks she really digs deep on this kind of like what right. does it mean to be looking at a group of men, especially in this particular case, a group of men who are so masculine. Well, hyper masculine. Yeah. Into the and to the point where they have all of these, like, foils in the text, right? Like, the lessers, mm. right? Who are 
like emasculated, right? In order right. to be their paranormal, and they have a, to. I mean, again, this doesn't. This doesn't. It, it doesn't read well in 2019, but like. It's, they have no like they are asexual like they yes. are they like are, they are stripped of you know all sexual pleasure all sexual like they read like gender i'll tell you what they read like incels right yeah. like they hate they hate women for being women there's a very clear and mm-hmm. uncomfortable like they're targeting a, like a transgender person who like works yeah, in the gym. They're smaller. Yeah, they're like everything about them is like articulated in in contrast to these yes. massive masculine like warriors. And, and that means that they're and it's not even that they're like feminized. It's like they're infantilized. The baby powder thing is it's fascinating. Really weird. Yeah, right? Because it's not, I mean, and that's the part that's, like, really interesting. It's not, like, the opposite of the Black Dagger Brotherhood is, like, femininity because it's it's that it's, like, babiness. It's really, I don't know, it's really interesting. And I think the thing that also is interesting about these two, like, kind of groups, like the Lessers versus the Black Dagger Brotherhood is that they're, they're like, they each have, like, a holy kind of, figure, right? And for the Black Dagger Brotherhood, it's the scribe virgin. And for the lessers, it's the Omega, which is this like very evil man, like creature who appears on page only a little bit in a terrifying way. There's not really any explanation. It's sort of very classic. The most villainous villain is one you don't describe at all because then we have to do all of the work. Right. And, um, but the scribe virgin is really an interesting, like, you know, her, and I don't know, it's just really, really fascinating the way she talks about the way, you know, uh, Rath actually goes up to sort of like see her and kind of like heaven. And, you know, Darius is in the fade with her and like talks about like the, how much she loves, you know, like, like life and what she's, how she's sad that he's, he doesn't experience that anymore. I mean, it's really fascinating stuff, but it also feels really you know, we talk a lot about, like, writing to the id. Like, mm. J.R. Ward, I don't think, I think she's fearlessly just putting stuff on page. I mean, that's how it reads to me, as, like, I, like, literally am just fearlessly putting all this stuff on page and not even really worrying too much about what I think it's doing, because it's just all so compelling. And then there's ways now, though, when we look at it, we're like, wow, there's so much going on. I mean, m- even Rath and, and um, Beth's, like, romance, it's really interesting to me, was not all that, like, at some point he's like, I love you. And I was like, why? Why do you love her? Yeah. And, right? In Lover, Rage, and Mary, I really felt like I believed in them as, sure. like, a romantic partnership. Sure. Like, that's so much more well-developed. But in this one, I was like, but why? And I Well, but that's yeah. true of all of them, right? Lover, yeah. Rage, and Mary, Lover, Zetas, and Bella, Lover, Butch, and Marissa, Lover, uh, Vicious, and Jane. Oh, yeah, <sighs> right? One, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of controversy about Vicious and Jane, but I love that one. I did, too. Anyway, yeah. but like... But again, we're looking at a book that I think doesn't know quite what it's going to become. Sure. Right. right? I think so, too. So, I again, it's one of those moments where, like, I almost always feel like in paranormal romance, you have to read the first one. Yes. Because you have to read the first one. Right. But 
you really shouldn't ever read the first one. Right, exactly. Like, like I've, I feel bad. I went out with Clayton and Aaron from Learning the Tropes the other day, and and they had read A Hunger Like No Other on their podcast because I said, like, I'd love to hear you guys do Cressley. Right. And then they were like, and I was like, well, it's not the best. And they were like, why didn't you give us the best one? And I was like, because it's the first one. You got to know where. I mean, it's yeah. hard. Paranormal is hard. This is why I think a lot of readers feel like there's such a high barrier to entry. But sure. Because when we talk about the world. Yeah, that's what I really. And I think I had forgotten how like. So it feels so it feels like out of time, this book. Like, yeah, for all the incredibly like millennial Sure. Not millennial. Millennial meaning of a time, not of not like a generation of right. people. Like it, for all the like things that in the early two thousands were popular that are thrown in here, like the Cadillac brand Escalades and, the, and right, like, yeah, cars, like and stuff that really does sort of make the text of a time. The whole world, like this place where they live, is a hellhole. Like yeah. it's filled with criminals. Everyone's getting raped all the time. Sure. Like, everyone's having, like, the police are just, everyone's getting murdered all the time. There, It's dirty. There are homeless people everywhere. There's a lot of prostitution. Not that, <laughs> and like, and what I mean by, and I say this, like, with all, uh, and and there yeah. isn't a lot of, like, there isn't a lot of, like, sensitive treatment. In oh, fact, no. I would, I, that's being kind. Right. There is no sensitive treatment of, like, Prostitution, homelessness, sex any of these workers. Sort of yeah, no, very none of it. like like these things that I think have nuance. There's none of that here. It's like we live in a shithole. You know and what? It, the the human world is a shithole. Yeah, you know what it you know what it reminds me of is in in comics. There's always yes. like a stand it's in like the Watchmen, like yeah, out, but it's like Gotham is, or right. Like yeah. there's no. This isn't. And it's fascinating to me because that because it's not New York, right? Like I'm like it's vaguely upstate. Yeah, it's like Rochester, maybe, but I don't know. Like no, but it's, it's like no, no, it's I, like no like, place. It is no American city. No American city is like this. It's but it's it is like cities in comics. It's like Gotham yeah. or it's like Watchmen, right? Well, that's Where it's the just thing. yeah, this. And I mean, and that's the part though about like urban fantasy. This book really dives into the idea that like. Modern America is sort of broken in a way that is not even worth talking about sensitively because it's not worth fixing. The whatever battle is happening between the Black Dagger Brotherhood and the lessers, between superheroes and supervillains, essentially, is happening at some scale that is greater and bigger than humanity, which is just like a backdrop. Yeah. That's how it read to me. So I have always sort of thought, as you know, like, I, I've always thought that the rise of paranormal um, is built on the back of this kind of need for big bads who can literally save the world, right? Right. When we small people cannot save the world from, like, terrorism or uh, unknown enemies, mm-hmm. like, unseen enemies. I mean, the rise of comic books yeah. is about war, world war, Right. right. Um, and you need heroes that are bigger than just like the boy down the street who is going to war to die. Yeah. Right. So I've always believed that. But interestingly, on this read, the battle here isn't for humanity. No, it's it's for, not for the world. It's for their own survival. Yeah. It's absolutely. like we protect ourselves. Yeah. And 
I had this moment. I know, it's kind of a bummer, though. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but I did have this moment. I'm sorry, Just you guys. Say I'm about it. to yeah. say something that's kind of a bummer. At this moment where I was like, maybe... Maybe this is just like sort of like there's something very nihilistic about this in yeah. the sense that like it feels like humanity like already you lost. just said like we don't have to fight for the world and it felt really American to me like this yeah. sort of post nine eleven like you know we fight for ourselves and like if screw everyone else yeah kind of and I wondered I had this moment where I was like I mean I, we we were both at the Ritas we heard Jar words that I. I don't know her, but I feel like I sort of vaguely understand her politics. And, like, I don't think she – I wondered, if, like, if if she was having this kind of conversation in some way. This, mm-hmm. like, yeah, what is masculinity? What is patriarchy? How do we talk about this? And then when you get to love her rage and Mary, right, Mary has cancer. Yeah. And rage has to learn – that is a really classic, like, alpha hero arc where he learns to feel feel and care for something other than his own yes people right because he has to care he learns to care for a human who's dying yeah right right um and so like but i think this book feels more dark oh god yes right anything i've read in a long time in well and i was thinking too like to me we were talking about like or is it urban fantasy or romance and i would like to suggest and it just like kind of popped into my brain that one big difference between urban fantasy and romance is whether or not you get the villain's point of view Hmm. and so the fact that in this book there is a sense of the villain being a person with the past and a history and we know what he fears and what he's trying to accomplish and achieve and and that we are put in that dark point of view i think is very anti-romance in some ways right that even in romance when there's like sort of an antagonist it's not all they are always other they're always like we don't really get them on the page and i found myself thinking that along with like sort of the like the real terrible condition of the town the fact that we are so in the mr x's point of view is a real way of like the most explicit way in which this is not romance to me yeah. It doesn't feel like romance to me either by the end. Um, I feel like it's romantic and it's sexy and the love story is is very solid. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't get there for me in the way that the next four books in the series do. Do you ever read, and I honestly was sort of curious to do it, is at some later point there is – Beth and and Raph come back and have I know. another book. Well, they come back twice, right? They're a very important subplot of I want to say Lovers Adist and Bella because mm. she's trying to get pregnant. No, I pregnant. think this is a later. Well, Bella gets pregnant, and then there's the King, which is yes. another book about them. And that's and no, the I one didn't. I, haven't read. I stopped reading at Lover John Michael and and Hex because this is a pitfall of binge reading paranormal um, or <laughs> yeah. binge reading really anything. It, it would, I imagine it could be the, a pitfall of binge reading the Bridgertons too, um, is John Michael is a child yeah. through the first however many six or seven books. And then he goes through the transition and becomes this like badass, like massive vampire yeah. and is the hero of a book. And I had like been sailing through these books and I hit that book and I just couldn't 
Yeah. Uh, disbel- I couldn't suspend my disbelief um, that he was a child. Like, uh, like, yeah, he was I, a child for me still. Yeah. And I couldn't do it. I, Even though he, he was not. I want to be very clear. Sure. He was right. Not he a was child not. Yeah. Text. And if I had been re- waiting a, a year every book, you would he would have aged up in a different way. Yeah, exactly. I stopped at Lover Fury and whoever Fury was with because I oh, like wasn't she like a, a witch or a fairy or something? I well, there were two things about that one. The one was Lover that Fury. it it was clear that Lover Fury like it was a subplot in its own book. Their their romance and I was like, I'm in it for the romance, but also I really have a hard time with addiction stories, and the fact that Fury was a drug addict was really um, mm-hmm. was really hard for me. And it's not that I think I think what I want is for people to like be cured and be whole and have that journey towards wholeness and then to find love because every time they're finding love and trying to get clean at the same time, I'm always really worried about it. Sure. 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 It's that classic, like uh, when you go to AA, there's a whole discussion of like, you should be a year sober before you start a new relationship. Like yeah. it's, yeah. Um, yeah, Lover Fury wasn't my favorite either, but I don't remember why, honestly, because I was blowing through them yeah. so quickly. Um, my actual favorite is Lover Revenge and Nurse. <laughs> I can't remember. I feel terrible. So I don't you can look it up because I will tell you, I did read that one, and I think what happened is I was at you know a Barnes and Noble, and it was like it had just gone to paperback, and mm-hmm. so I was able to pick up a hardback, and I was like, oh, I used to like these. I should read this, and remember being like, oh, this was really fucking good. Yeah. But then I didn't. That's the second. Go it's anymore. Book seven. It's yeah. Book seven. So book eight is Lover Mine, and that's the one that I stopped on because that's lo- that's Lover John Matthew. But Lover Avenge yeah. is uh, Revenge. Lover, Revenge and Elena. Oh, yeah. E-H-L-E-N-A. And she is a nurse. Um, can we talk about heroines? Yes. So, it is virtually impossible for us to talk, I think, probably ever about a paranormal romance and not compare it to Cressley. Sure. And so I want everybody who is listening to please understand that you all know how we feel about Cressley and IED. And so, like, take everything we're about to say with a grain of salt. Right. Um, I These heroines are... There's a line in the book, and I couldn't... I was like, is this... This has to be intentional. Let me just say, one of the things I found myself thinking was, I love, I really came up on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like, that was, like, a, like probably the first, like, vampire thing I ever really loved. Although I was in my 20s when I watched it, probably. Yeah. And then, Same, by the way. Like, it is my go-to comfort. Yeah. Watch. And so, to me, the... The link from Buffy to IAD makes a lot of sense because I think Cressley's so much about strong heroines. Yes. And when I read this, I was like, it's all that big dick energy from Buffy, but given to these male characters. Yes. And I felt, I think I I felt like that's probably why I never loved them. Right. The same way, because they were, it's about a woman. I mean, Beth is the only female in this book, the only woman in this book. It's about a woman entering a man's world and making, yeah. like, like kind of elbowing her her way into it. Yeah. Whereas the books I tend to prefer are ones where it was like a woman's world all along. So I have two thoughts on this. One is like super duper feminist nerd. And the other is like related to the text of this book. Okay. Which one do you want first? Uh, super feminist nerd. (laughs) 
You're like, I always want that more. <laughs> always. Give it to me. So, okay. I felt the same way. And for the same reasons, like coming off the Valkyries, yeah. I'm like, what the fuck? First of all, if you're going to put a bunch of people living in a house together, why is, why are there not like, like shit talking Valkyries in this house? Yes, right? So right. there's, and like, that is it. That is one of those moments where, like, if I saw this, if if this were a review that I read on Goodreads, I would text it to Jen and I would say, this motherfucker wants a different book. Like, yes. they're not reviewing right. the book. Right. Which, so I want everyone to, I can hear it now. Like, if you have come to us as a J.R. Ward fan and you are mad at me for saying that, I apologize. Like, it's just a, pro- like, it's a, it's a me problem and not a you problem. Absolutely. Uh that said, I could not stop thinking about Susan Faludi, who you know recently I met. Um, and so I've been, like, thinking a lot about Susan Faludi's, like, uh, work. And um, Susan Faludi, for those of you who don't know who that is, she's a feminist. Um, she's a feminist author. She's an activist. She's a journalist. Um, she's a Pulitzer Prize winner. And she wrote – she's written – three or four books that are uh, that are like sort of well-known, very sort of second wavy feminist texts. Um, but a book that she wrote, her most, I want to say it's her most recent book, but at least her second most recent book um, was written right after 9-11. And I'm sorry that I keep harping on 9-11, but I think it's important. Um, and it's called The Terror Dream, uh, Fear and Fantasy in Post-9-11 America. Mm. And basically, there's a lot, I have a lot to say about this book. And I, ha- like, I highly recommend people, we'll link to reviews of it. There, it, it got a ton of attention when it came out in 2007. Um, and it, it got very good attention, very bad attention. Like, it was definitely in, an incendiary text in feminism and in, like, American social studies. Yeah. But basically, the argument here is that the terrorist attacks of 9-11 resulted in this kind of um, a, a resurgence of patriarchy and mm-hmm. a yeah. renewed attack on feminism and on women. Especially an intersectional, like, if you think about intersectional feminism, which, like, especially on women of color, especially on poor women, um, this sort of heroic figure that came to pass post 9-11, like, is actually, what she argues is it immediately diminishes women. Interesting. um, By virtue of being masculine, right? Right. and she or or arguing that masculinity then is the way to, like, repair or fix what has gone wrong. Right, like masculinity is the is the gender of war. It's the gender of safety. It's the gender of protectiveness. It's the gender of like right, like like all of that belongs to the masculine and not the feminine, which of course is nonsense. And that's what she's saying. Anyway, so what it, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I kept thinking about her. I had just been reading, you know, I I've just been sort of like rethinking her. And I kept thinking while I was reading this, like, what you just said, this kind of like, where are the women? Mm -hmm. What are we valuing in these books? Like, what is the text saying? And why did that work so well for us in these days? Right. But it was happening in Twilight, too, to point to your, Mm -hmm. like, Bella's basically alone. Yeah. Like, a girl on an island. Anyway, but what I wanted to say, the, the sort of less nerdy piece of it is at one point it's on uh it's at location 4885 on my document um she actually so we're in this like great scene this scene that i love so much which is the scene when they get 
married or mated. And then all the brothers carve her name. (laughs) This is nuts. I know on his. (laughs) So, okay. Here's this weird, like, this is, again, the world building is so fascinating. Um, As part of, like, the, the, like, legend of these vampires, like, if salt gets in their wounds, um, they never heal. Yeah. So, um, if, so he has, um, so when you get mated, your brothers, so there is also this like implication that every vampire in this whole world has a brotherhood, right? Like sure. this is like a ceremonial thing. So your brothers carve the name of your mate on your back. Yeah. In old English. And then they pour salt water over it. So that it never it can never scars. be scars. It's like you're basically scarred with the name of your mate. And I mean, like on a very like pure id level, I'm <laughs> here for this. Like, sure, I, you're like, like del- it's like, like I'm both delighted and oh, disgusted so by it. Right? And it's so like- great. <laughs> It's so wrong and so good. Like, basically, that should be the subtitle of Fate of Mates forever. Like, it's yeah, <laughs> so, so wrong, wrong and, and so, so good. good. Yeah. Um, but the so this is happening and you're sort of horrified, but also like kind of into it. And then um, she's looking at and her la- her name is Elizabeth. And so right. It's written across his back. And she's looking at it and she says, he says, are you OK? Because she's clearly like. What the fuck just happened? Yeah, right. Weird thing that happened. And I mean, I think it's worth also pointing out that during the whole thing, like, she's like, what is happening? Like, this doesn't have to happen. Like, what's going on? This is all super weird. And like, the, one of the other mates in the crew is like, it's one of the only times another woman's on the page. And she's yeah. like, let your, um, she's basically like, you have to let him, you're mating a warrior, Wellesley, Wellesley says, let him have his honor in front of his brothers, which also is like, yike. <laughs> you are awarded one yike. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. I basically have also had this whole scene highlighted. Yikes. So then she's like, okay, she's staring at the scar on his back, which is fast healing because, you know, he's king of the vampires. And then she mm-hmm. she says, um, so he says, are you okay? And she nodded, wondering why she couldn't have been named Mary or, or Sue. Sue. It's not a coincidence. It can't be. No way. It can't, Like, it just, no, right? No. And so it's one of those moments where it's like, J.R. Ward is telling us in the text, like, she's not a Mary Sue. Yeah. And here's my question. What is she? (laughs) Is she really not? Yeah. Like, and here's my other question. Is she not a Mary Sue in 2009, but like kind of a Mary Sue in 2019? Here's the thing I I would like to posit. All right. Yeah. Or is it just, I'm sorry, one other thing. This is my third question here because I don't, again, like, I feel like I'm being mean about this, and I don't want to be because I really do love these. Like, I love thinking right. about this series a lot. But I, um, is it possible that she reads that way to me because by virtue of the fact that she is alone? Here's, here's what I would say. Um, one of the reasons I really liked Beth as a character is she felt pretty normal. 
right? Like, she's like, yeah, shit happens. I'm just going to roll with it. I'm just going to work hard. Men are kind of like everything about her seemed really normal. And yet these men who have like sequestered themselves from women and from femininity and from womanhood in all of its ways are like, oh, my God, she's so special and amazing. And I'm like, no, she's all of us. Just let us in. Yeah. And that's how I felt. I just I really do feel like this book is doing different work. Yeah. Like it's it's having and and this is the thing. This is why like I I feel like listeners are going to be like Sarah didn't didn't like that. And it's not true. I really actually loved reading this book. Yeah. In the sense that like I loved the dialogue it seemed to be having on every page. And here's the other thing. And I I mean like J.R. Ward went to Smith. I went to Smith. Like I know what she what classes she had to take. Like right. I know J.R. Ward knows feminism, second wave feminism, upwards and downwards. Yeah. So, like, every time masculinity is on the page, I know that there is a conversation happening. I do, too. And I, But it's, like, what I always wonder about with books like this, with, with all of romance, right? It's, like, where is the fine line between, like, putting it on page to, like, take it down? And when are we putting it on page and holding it up? Yeah. Well, and this is the thing, right, is timing, too. Like, of course. In the world, masculinity is so hypervalued mm-hmm. at this point. Like, we start seeing, like, firefighters and soldiers, and we're seeing constant visions of war, yeah. right? That hypermasculinity becomes valuable. Yeah. So how can you have a conversation about that? When you're sort of establishing, like the the world of your book is is a is like the world of our book, but like on steroids, right? Literally. And I, but like, you know what else? Then I find like so fascinating about this book. Oh, and maybe it's not. I mean, really, I guess at this point we're just talking about like the series that we've read. It's almost hard to talk about this book all alone. So sorry, everybody. Is I think. Like, like many people that the natural, like what should have happened is that Butch should have ended up with Vicious. Clearly, J.R. Ward feels the same way. Yeah. There are two halves of a whole. At some point in a future book, they're like sleeping naked together in a bed, but like they're just friends. Like there's a constant sense of like they're not into each other. But like, of course they, of course they are. And I, I just don't know. And like, again, like going back into the time machine, I think probably for as like big mainstream books as it is to put it to put like men being like tender to each other in a friendship way or, or in lover as lovers. Like she does that. I give her a lot of credit for that. Yep. Same. And I think there is no there is no question in my mind that she got there before readers did. Oh, because yes. Later, she gives everyone Quinn and Blay. Yeah. Right. And the reality is, is that Quinn and Blay is basically like Butch and Vicious fan fiction. Yes. Like and so where we all kind of wanted Butch and Vicious to be to be the friends to lovers story we knew it could be. Um, it ends up being like, I, I think she, it feels like she's constantly pulling herself back from that. Yeah. If she was writing Dark Lover right now, now, I mean, she wouldn't write like Dark Lover the way it was right now, but I don't think it would have gone in the direction it did with some characters. Mm. Right. Cause I think it's, it's, but then 
is it because she made the world that in which it could exist now? I mean, I don't know. It's like really a fascinating kind well, of thing. And then as a reader, as a writer, right, you have the moment where you're like, well, okay, Butch is not going to get Bella. Marissa is not going to get Wrath. So it makes sense that they would get each other. Yeah. That they would fall for each other. But like at the same time, you've got Vicious in the mix. Can we talk about Marissa? Because I really oh, like her. I like, I like her, her a lot. lot. I like her a lot, and I really felt for her. Like, to me, me she, I was like, I don't, like, does anyone deserve her? <laughs> no. Right? That's I how I I also feel like she, one of the things J.R. Ward does so beautifully in all of her books, I think, is she never drops a character. Like, every character no, gets. No, that's true. Every character gets so much respectful attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's why the books become bigger and bigger over time. Like, she yeah. never hesitates to give a character as much time as they warrant on the page. Yeah. And so, and because she is so good at that, you end up with this incredibly, again, rich world full of these characters who all have possibility. Yeah. Um, and Marisa is one of those one of those characters for sure. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I feel that way. Like, I feel that way actually about most of the heroines who come after this. Yeah. Like, I feel like for me, Beth is the hardest heroine for me to love. Um, Cause Mary, I mean, Mary has such like an intense personal story. Bella is like really working for it with Sadis. Like, she's healing him. She's doing a lot of emotional work. I love Jane, even though I know it was... I loved loved that she was a doctor and was like, fuck you, my work is important. Me too. And then she becomes the doctor for, you know, the whole brotherhood. I mean, I like the doctor. Havers, yeah. Uh, How do we feel about Fritz... Dobby the house elf. (laughs) I mean, mean, that's basically what he is. Like the whole time, I'm like, just give this poor old guy a sock and let him leave to have his retirement. You know what I really struggled with? The fact that they're fucking called dogs. The doggin. I was like, oh, yeah. It did not pronounce that way in my head. Oh, really? I can't take it away. I mean, like the the servitude piece. Yeah. But like, there is a moment where he. She, Beth, like, goes to shake his hand, and he's oh. like, oh, my God, can I touch her? And I'm like, oh, my God, he is Dobby, the house elf. Yeah. Although that's really interesting, the word, I mean, okay, yeah, it's just terrible. I don't, that's, I can't talk about it because it's too much. But the, what's really interesting to me is one of my favorite scenes in Lover Zetas to Yes. All right. Is fine. Is the part where like she goes into the meeting, right? And the whole house is essentially rocked with the waves of hormones coming from this one woman's body. (laughs) I love it. Right. This scene to me is so primal. It's amazing. Wrecked by female hormones. I love it. And what happens? It's this amazing moment. The way they talk about like if you are a man lucky enough to be with a woman during that time, you you're serving her. Yeah. And 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 it's vicious. Who's like you're not going to serve her? And he like like hikes up his dick and is like, I'll go do it, right? Yeah. And it's this. So it's a really interesting the way that that word is used throughout the text. Yeah, servitude. Also, the way that it's portrayed throughout the text, right? Because uh, poor Marisa, right? Like she 
is so okay. So the the design of this world requires that Wrath, as a grown vampire, needs to feed off of a woman. Yeah, a female vampire. Um, but he is not. He's not married to her, although she is his mate. There's a sort of like theory that she, well, she is his mate. So there's a lot of weirdness that goes on here. But but she never, he never got the Marissa tattoo. I don't know how that he got out of that one. Yeah, I don't. It's fine. It's romance. It's erased by romance. So the um, there's so she goes to him to feed him, and she gets pretty much nothing out of this except for like the ability to serve the king, and it feels real. Well, that's there's a whole race of chosen women whose job it is. It's not great, man. (laughs) I don't love it. Here's the thing. No Valkyrie would ever stand for this. Josie would throw a fucking Ferrari into that house and that would be the end of it. (laughs) Serve this. I would like to serve you up 2,000 tons of metal. Oh, my God. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that's the part. I think this. Yeah. But. All of this is just, like, with all of this, at the end, you think to yourself, like, but I read every word of these books. Like, I love, I tore through these books. Tore through them. Absolutely. And they are delicious. And I will say, but I I stand by my statement that this is not the best one. Like, oh, this no. one, yeah. he is not the best hero. No. She is not the best heroine. Their love story is very odd. Well, and I think that's and why it's, it's doing, like it's your the book's doing too much work. Yeah, it's building the world. It's why, in a weird way, I'm sort of interested to go back and maybe look at this one that's the king because I do wonder if she was like, look, I they I, readers needed or more, or I have more to give them about these two, and I, it's like a really interesting thing. I think when authors, I mean, I would like to, I would like to categorically state that I can only imagine. That J.R. Ward rolled into the publisher and was like, you know what I want to do? I want to write the next book about those people I already wrote about before. <laughs> and the publisher threw her money. <laughs> I was right? like, yep. <laughs> and so so that to me, I mean, I think it, like you said, I think it, her commitment to them as characters who are like going on, who still are evolving, who are still growing throughout books, like those lines that she's laying. Yeah, I, she's I doing a lot of really interesting work. Yeah. Like, she's doing, like, I mean, I don't want to spoil this, but what happens with Torment and Wellesley? Wellesley. Oh. Wesley. Well, it's Wellesley. Wellesley. Yeah. <laughs> um, what happens with Tennessee as a Smith grad? What's going on there? She, I mean, that feels like a metaphor. <laughs> oh, wait. I want to talk about blindness. Hold on. Yeah, go um, ahead. So, like, I think what happens there is... Yeah. Real risky. I mean, I wouldn't have made that choice. No. I mean, but that's, again, the urban fantasy thing. I think where it's riding that line where, like, bad things are allowed to happen to beloved characters in this series that yeah. is not the case normally yeah. in romance. Um. All right. You want to talk about blindness? And oh, then we'll only because it's really funny. <laughs> this is. He's not. You know he's like, I realize he's not actually blind. He just can't see great. <laughs> well, here's the part that's, like, hilarious, though. I don't understand. Here's the part that's amazing. So, you know, I don't know. I have, like, really, I don't have a great memory. Kelly often remembers everything for me. But, you know, sometimes people say things and you just, like, it's stuck in your brain forever. And they're, like, random. And I vividly remember I took a class 
on like American novels in college forever ago. And the only thing I really remember this woman saying that my teacher was, um, I remember her like just like throwing it off really casually, like, well, blindness is always a metaphor. And I just remember being like, oh, okay. Cause you know, she's like, you don't have to make any character blind. So what does it mean? And I'm like fascinated this, like I always was really fascinating. But isn't the blind king a thing? Well, I, I'm yeah. now making, like maybe I'm making that up, but I feel like somewhere in like the deep, recesses of my literature brain there's a blind king well there's oedipus who blinds himself in greek mythology seers and like oracles are often blind right because they can see things at a different level right and i think that's the part is like but wrath wrath's blindness is to his like the needs of his own people Right. This is a book about him essentially like taking on the mantle of king, which I think is really fascinating. Right. He's just like, I'm ignoring all this shit I don't want to deal with because I don't want to be king because I because I hid when my parents were killed. Right. Because I I was I I couldn't save them. Mm -hmm. But so I think it's just like really interesting because it's also here he is so powerful and yet he has this very specific and real what should be a real Again, it's very superhero-y. Like, who's that superhero daredevil who can, like, fight even though he's blind? Mm-hmm. I feel like it's, like, his senses to everything else are just, like, really magnified. Well, and right? it's sort of established right from very – I actually really love that first scene, which is from the perspective of – well, it's sort of – it starts as a, from the perspective of, Bella's, of Bella, of uh, Beth – Beth's father, who's going to ask Wrath for help. And then it switches to Wrath's POV. And Wrath, at one point, he's like in this club and it's loud and it's filled with humans. And he's able to, it's sort of, it does establish him as a, them all as superheroes. Like he can wipe everyone's mind in the club. Like he can move at one point, lock like he, doors and turn on candles. <laughs> yeah. The first time they like have sex, he's like, I put the cat in the bathroom. Like he sort of like moves everything. That cat, by the way, disappears. Peers. Oh, I love that they were cat people, though. <laughs> no, I know, but he's like, he's yeah. like, he's like, from his mind, he like turned off the lights, put the cat in the bathroom, oh, and yeah, then like the locked doors. all the doors in the house. And I was like, this is a very useful person to have around. I mean, <laughs> so anyway, but what's amazing in that scene is like it's this writhing mass of humanity, and he's also like, I think part of the appeal of of vampires and we I don't think we ever talked about this last season is like there's a feralness to them right like there's like a there's a they're just basically animals and so he can smell every person in the club and they're all afraid of him because he's pure terror she like establishes that that's I think that's how she describes him at one point and he's like and he smelled Darius Darius is that his name Mm -hmm. yeah he smells Darius coming because he's the only person who doesn't smell like fear, right? And, like, that's really, like, such solid characterization. Like, bam, page two. I didn't know what a sawed-off was, but I knew who this guy was. (laughs) I was so young and innocent. Then, like, later on, like, several times I kept, like, taking, like, screenshots and sending it to you. Like, right? Like, they're getting Beth ready for the wedding. And Wellesie's, like, he's not going to believe it when he sees you. And I'm texting Sarah, like, I was like, because he can't see. Right? Like, it's this (laughs) really interesting thing where, like, you know, she's not really committed truly to his blindness as being. No, because he's 
keenly aware of her beauty. Yes. Too. And Maurice's beauty. Like, yeah. he can see them. And so I think there's some, but maybe there's something there, too. Like, maybe he can see them. Yeah. Maybe he can see women. Maybe he can see femininity because it is the opposite. It is the it is the antidote to toxicity. There's a lot going on in this book. Like I wish I mean oh, we could talk about it for I hours. Mean, we really, really could. And I I'm so I'm so glad you picked it. It because there is so much to talk about in it. The best thing about romance from these these earlier romances, these like primordial texts, and this is a primordial paranormal text, I think. Like one of the reasons why they're so fun to read is because there's so much to mine in them. And I think paranormal especially brings that to the table. Yeah. Um, uh, where do we go from here? Um, <laughs> oh, my God. We're I don't over. Know. We're well over. So yeah. um, I want to say a couple things. Um, if you didn't listen to the interstitial last week with Andy Christopher, you missed our announcement that now we are taking voicemails. <laughs> um, you will hear if you stay tuned after the end music, um, the end credit music, <laughs> credit music, the end music, um, you will hear uh, some of your fellow Fated Mates listeners talking about the books that blooded them. Please call us and tell us the book that blooded you, and maybe you will be on a future episode of Fated Mates. Thank you for to those of you who've already called in. There are already a lot of you. Who have called in. So we love that you are out there and that you exist in the world. The number is 646-450-3766. We do not put that anywhere other than here in uh, our voices. Yes. So, yeah, because we don't want, you know, anybody but you guys calling us. Um, And so you can leave us a message at 646-450-3766. You can buy Faded Mates buttons from Best Friend Kelly. Yes. Um, and you can uh, listen. Oh, you can play Fated Mates Bingo. Um, we will put links. <laughs> oh, in, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> we will put a link in show notes to somebody, a fabulous, fabulous reader made bingo cards for Fated Mates episodes, um, which I think is amazing and we're delighted by. Um, Fated Mates is produced by Eric Mortensen. And uh, what? Are, oh, what about next week? Two weeks from now. Two weeks so from Next now. week we'll have an interstitial, and two weeks from now we will be back. It will be officially, Jen. It will. I know. Officially our, be our one year anniversary. One year anniversary. Our anniversary is Halloween, you guys. So you know, if you want to send us presents or stuff, <laughs> that's our anniversary. <laughs> the first time we were ever in your ear holes. Um, and so the first, what will be the first episode of our second year in yes. existence? Um, will be priest. By Sierra Simone, which a lot of you have already read because, you know, I've talked about it a thousand times, but we're going to read it. It is the rule for this, the series. The rule for uh, books that blooded us was that um, we wanted it to be books that taught us something about how romance could evolve and like what the romance genre could be. Yeah. And this is a big one for me. Um, and I have not read it. So oh. content warning. The hero is an actual priest. He is frocked. He has <laughs> he has a flock. Um, so if blasphemy in a Catholic church, and by blasphemy I mean like sex inside a Catholic church is a thing that you think would not be cool for you, give this one a miss. <laughs> I know all a lot of you pervs are already buying it though. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have never read it all. So it's also in first person hero point of view. Mm. I know for a fact Sierra is a little Sierra listens to every episode of this podcast. She's very nervous. Oh my God, happening. don't be. It's gonna be amazing. She's very worried Jen isn't gonna like her after this. <laughs> I'm gonna Not love true, her probably more. She's also a genius, so well, Eric complained the other day that he had to make our end our ending music longer because we just talk for 20 minutes after we start ending the episode. And I think we've we've done that again this time. Sorry, so, not sorry. You're welcome. I think, I think the ending <laughs> music should just start now and then it'll maybe be a voicemail from a listener. Yeah, it will be a voicemail from a listener after this. There you go. So stay tuned. Uh, we love you guys. <laughs> Until next week. Bye. Hi, Faded Mates. Okay, so the book that blooded me is When Beauty Came to the Beast by Eloisa James. I read it when I was 32. It was my first romance novel. Um, I had always been a reader, but I didn't read romance because of internalized misogyny and the patriarchy. Um, but back in 2014, I was still a romance neophyte. And at that time, one of my dearest friends had just gotten a job as a professor at a university in New York. And he was gushing about one of his colleagues. He was telling me that I would love her, that she was an English professor, but also an historical romance novelist who had married an Italian knight. And she had amazing apartments in Manhattan and in Florence. So, of course, I'm like, who is this woman who's living this perfect life? And so he and I went to a bookstore and I bought Eloisa James's book, When Beauty Came the Beast. And then because I was carrying around all this anti-romance patriarchal baggage, I expected it to be silly, and I started reading, and it is silly, but in the best possible way. The whole plot involves a woman who is ruined because she wore a dress that made her look pregnant. That is ridiculous. And yet, this book is wickedly delicious. It's atmospheric, it's set in a remote castle overlooking the sea, there's these weird and hilarious side characters, there's all this sexy banter between the hero and heroine, and he's a rude, grumpy Dr. Beast, and she's a feisty and tempestuous and sarcastic beauty, and then there's this natural bathing pool carved into the rocks overlooking the ocean, and they swim in it, and it just... I don't know, this book just smashed through all that patriarchal oppression I had internalized about romance, and as I read this book, all I could think of was, yes, 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 yes. So that was When Beauty Tamed the Beast by Eloisa James. My name is Kelly Gurner, and you can find me on Instagram at at spacedkelly. Thanks. <laughs>